you've constantly got to remember that the customer you have today may not be the customer you have tomorrow. So you've got to constantly replenish your customer base. And um, that was another big factor. So those were the two big factors, not upgrading and not taking care of customers you had and not going after new customers to grow. Yes. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. On today's show, we're telling the life story of F.C. Phillips in Stoughton, Massachusetts, a fourth-generation machining company that lived from 1911 until January of 2020. Our guest is Brian Snow, former co-owner of the company and a grandson of the company's founder, F.C. Phillips. I talked to Brian about the company's longevity and what ultimately led it to shut its doors. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. I'm very honored to be here with Brian Snow today, the former vice president and treasurer of FC Phillips Company. They are a shop as of uh, right before COVID-19, about 2000. Yeah, 2020. Yeah. Place was started in 1911 by Brian's grandfather. And they're actually auctioning it off. One of our sponsors for the uh, for the blog is auctioning it off on November 18th. So we normally don't interview people from companies that aren't going anymore, but I got to know Brian and the company has a great story. And this podcast is about the life of a company, the beginnings. And, you know, it's generally just part of life, life and death. And we're going to talk about how the company thrived and then what led to its end. So I, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Brian. It's fantastic. I've loved getting to know you uh, the last few weeks in preparation for this. So before we go any further, I want you to tell me just briefly about FC Phillips, what kind of machines you guys had, what kind of shop you were, and then I'll get into some specifics about the history and about your history, et cetera there. If you had to sum up the shop in a minute, you know, how would you summarize it? Well, again, started in 1911, basically started because of the shoe business that was in the block Brockton, Taunton area. Right. So Massachusetts was a shoe place. 
Yeah, Brockton was known as Shoe City at one time, and uh, they made a lot of shoes. And uh, Right, I failed to introduce the shop where it's located. It's in Brockton or Stoughton? Stoughton. Stoughton, Massachusetts. And I was listening to a podcast today. Is Stoughton known for, like, witch trials? Uh, no, that was Salem. <laughs> I feel like I heard something about Stoughton as well, but you would know better since you were there. Okay, so Massachusetts, early 1900s, big into the shoe business, correct? Right, yes. My grandfather really started shoe trees where, you know, these were the, like an insert into a shoe and there was a screw in the middle that we used to turn this threaded rod and uh, you could expand it to fit different shoes. That was some of his first orders, get doing the uh, parts for shoe trees. What do you think he was making that on, like Brown and Sharps or something? Yes, probably, because Brown and Sharps would have been around about that time, too. So we're talking about what years here? Probably around 1915. Uh, he would cut the rods off, so I would imagine he would have. He had a lot of hand machines at that time, tar-type hand machines and a single spindle. And um, he would cut the rods off in one length. And then he did have a, a threading machine that he would lock the rods into and he would just do threads. It was actually double headed. It had two heads, uh, threading heads on it. And it would cut the threads on both both rods at the same time. It, you know, he was making a lot of those. Interesting. All right. So he's we're in the, the teens and he's doing that. And then. Later on, you guys got into um, the athletic spikes business? Right. I would think that was probably around in the 1930s by that time, maybe the 20s. I'm not sure. But So how did that how did that start? It's just like tons of manufacturers around there. And then somebody says, I need some spikes. And yeah. Exactly. I mean, somebody said, I need something. Uh, FC would be the first person to say, I think I can do that, or I bet I can make that. It was brought to my attention the other day by the, the uh, Stoughton Historical Society, how many patents he held. And uh, the fellow was where I was talking to was say, if you ever go online and go to the patent office, you can see how many patents F.C. Phillips had. Your, your grandfather. Yeah, my grandfather. What were some of the most interesting patents? Well, the, actually, the golf spike, because it wasn't so much he came up with the idea of a golf spike. He came up with the idea how to assemble, how a, a golf spike could be assembled. Okay. Yeah. And, and so he devised that I can punch press the washer. I can make a hardened steel tip with a thread on it. And I can assemble it into a soft washer. And by crushing it in, it's going to make a one-piece construction very durable that he can put on a shoe as a golf spike. He patented the idea of the construction of how the spike was going to be made. Interesting. What, what were some of the other patents he had? I mean, that's probably the most important for the company, but he had some other interesting things. Yeah, he, he devised a, um, I don't know if he had a patent on, but he devised a way that people who had a Model A Ford, uh, the Model A Ford had two handles on the steering wheel and one was for throttle. And the other was for spark control. Two handles on a steering wheel? Yeah. And to advance the speed of the, of the Model A, you actually lifted one handle up to accelerate. 
but to keep the engine in time and to keep the engine running smoothly, you had a spark control. So it wasn't pedals? There was a pedal too. It was funny because as you push the lever up, the pedal would go down. So you could either use the pedal or the handle. So in a way, they were like a hundred years ahead of their time. It sounds like something that they would do now. Yeah. And the idea that you had to work the uh, the spark control side exactly with the handle, he developed a way that you didn't need to touch the spark control anymore. And it would do it automatically. And so he had this uh, little attachment that he could put on the Model A Ford. And uh, there's these stories about how people would line up in front of the factory and drive around back. He had a mechanic there all day long putting these spark control devices on Model A Fords. Wow. So he's an innovator. He's an entrepreneur. He sounds like something special. One thing you mentioned when we were talking was that he created like a community center in the shop, like a a breakfast room, Fellowship Hall. Yes, Fellowship Hall, 1944. He built this hall that uh, the employees could use. It had a pool table, coffee all day long for anybody who wanted it. So he's like, so basically like Google. (laughs) He didn't know that though. (laughs) And would he eat with the people? Yeah, I've got wonderful pictures of him sitting at tables, talking with the employees, and uh, he was a people person. And uh, he was constantly on the floor, working on the machines. He'd be covered with oil just like everybody else. There's this funny story that I was told. He uh, he had this old felt hat that he used to wear, and he looked like the local bum in town. And uh, one day he was at the gate trying to open the gate up and a policeman comes by. Opening the gate for his own company. Yeah. Yeah. He was yeah at the gate of his own company. Right. And the policeman comes by and says, hey, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm getting into my factory. And the cop said to him, yeah, sure. Right. In your dreams. Right. And, <laughs> and actually they arrested him for trying to break in. Oh, wow. They didn't believe he was the owner of the of the company. That is total family lore. I love it. <laughs> and people must have really liked him for eating with people and just being sort of a part of things. Yes. He was a regular guy. Yeah. And did you know him at all? A little. He would come. I was still probably a junior in high school at the time. Oh, OK. So you should know him. I mean, yeah. Yeah, he would come over to the house. He would always smell of sulfur cutting oil, you know. (laughs) And uh, my mother used to invite him over for dinner every once in a while. He was a great guy. So back to the the spikes. Eventually, the golf spike business was basically deposed by the greenskeepers. Right. Yeah. The greenskeepers were upset because the steel spikes were tearing up the turf. So they they said, geez, we're going to outlaw spikes on the course. Of course, the pros still pros still wear them. Right. So, I mean, I don't play golf, but if you're just like a regular club player, you generally only wear rubber spikes. Yeah. 
And I mean, people started wearing sneakers and then the, the soles of the golf shoes just had nubs on them and they had to be a certain size because they got too big. They didn't want, they didn't want you tearing up the turf again. And so, yeah, it's the green keepers that put an end to the steel spike business. And how do you make the spikes? How, what machines did you make them on? Acmes? Yeah, we made them on the Acmes. Like a 7 sixteenths or something? Yeah, exactly. The, the smaller machines and we cut the points and read them and then case hardened them and uh then we'd assemble into the washers so it came off the punch presses mm -hmm. and until the end of the company you guys were still making spikes though for other stuff correct yeah the business at that point though was probably 50 percent athletic spikes and 50 percent just doing job shop screw machine work for almost, you know, we worked for Hewlett Packard, Snap-on Tool. We had many, many accounts. Sure. At the end, the main spikes you were making was for track. And then the rest of them stopped doing metal spikes, baseball, football. Cause... Right. The Acmes could still turn out spike points. So we did track spikes. And then we remember the uh, logwood, uh, redwood spike which is virtually like a golf spike, except- So these are for people in the lumber industry cutting down trees? Right. And they call them redwood spikes because they used to climb on the redwood bark. And, you know, if you ever see a logger go up a tree, that they need to really clamp into the tree. What are they cutting down redwoods for anyways? We need as many redwoods as we can get. Yeah, yeah tell that to the people on the West Coast, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, because they, they're thinning it out so they don't have the wildfires or? I don't know. I, I don't know. So, you know, I think everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people who listen to this podcast and in this business, they're fascinated by people that have their own products. You know, it's like the holy grail for certain people. If I could only have my own product. Okay, let's just keep going with the evolution. Your father uh, went into the business. Would you say he managed a little differently than your grandfather? Yes, my, my father was more of the office kind of guy. My grandfather was more in the factory and with the employees. And my father's knack was finding good people to do for him. He had a wonderful sales force. He found some wonderful people to do sewing. And uh, Did your father go to college? He went to a, uh, an engineering school called Wentworth. It was a two-year program. And it was during the war. And then he, uh, he actually worked at uh, MIT for a while. Whoa. Yeah. They were having trouble with torpedoes in World War II. And uh, they would either misdirect or they prematurely ignite. They were having all kinds of problems. They wouldn't, they wouldn't function properly. Okay. They actually had a, a torpedo track in the basement of MIT. And uh, he was working with the Professor Voss at MIT, who was uh, trying to solve the torpedo problem. You guys were making ammunition? We met, not during World War II, no. Okay. What about Vietnam? Did you make firearms for that? Yeah, we made um, the M16 machine gun, which was pretty much the uh, preferred gun in Vietnam was being made by Harrington Richardson Arms. I believe they were in Worcester at that time. And um, we were making a pin that held the stock to the barrel end of the gun. And uh, so we were making these small pins that they would press in. 
Interesting. When when were you born? 1945. 1945. Okay. So same as my dad, slightly younger. Did you always think that you were going to go into the business? I actually started in agriculture. Okay. But you didn't totally answer my question. Well, it, I think originally I, I thought it was going to be into agricultural farming and then I changed and uh, I, I went to business school. What made you change? It just seemed like business school was going to be a better better lifestyle? Yeah. Farming is tough. <laughs> and uh, I, I was at school with a lot of guys that were always going to the family farm. And uh, I, I didn't have a family farm. I had a, a family machine shop. So I, I switched majors and went into management, got a management degree. So when you went into that, you were kind of going back of your mind, at least like this could work if I decide to go into the business. Or were you thinking you wanted to just go into some other kind of business? No, I actually I, I had my back ended up having a problem. And um, one of the, the estimator at the factory said, uh, gee, Brian, why don't you have a nice sit down job? And uh, that's how I really got started working at the factory. I started realizing I really enjoyed it. How long did it take before you felt like you were getting into the flow and you really enjoyed it? Probably six months. I mean, I was. Oh, okay. So you took to it quickly. Yes. Yes. I loved it. It was it was interesting. And um, it was more of a customer relations kind of thing, doing pricing, customer relations. Meantime, I'd already worked in the plant. For many years, actually, either night shift or during the day when I was growing up. Yeah. So I already had a kind of machining background. I could have I understood how machines, how they worked and, you know, how how to what to expect uh, with each machine. If I did some quoting or anything. So it was I was well rounded at that point. Absolutely. I'm sure. Um, And you're the oldest in the family. How many siblings do you have? Uh, I have no, uh, a younger brother. Younger brother. Okay. So you were in the business first before he came in the business? Uh, he started in the business kind of right out of high school and stuck with it. And because of that, actually, he became the president of the company. Because he was, it's kind of happened because he, because he came in first. That was sort of maybe, mm-hmm. did you guys both have ownership in the company? Yeah, it was a 50-50 ownership. Well, when my father was alive, it was, you know, the business was owned between my mother and my father. And then when my father passed away, the, the business actually was owned by my mother, which was interesting because then we became a women-owned business, which helps in getting contracts. We won some military contracts because we're a woman-owned business. How old were you when um, your father died and you, you know? I guess I was probably about 30, 32 or so, 34. And was he working in the business until he died? He had retired. He had retired. What's something really important that you learned from your father? He had a knack of being able to read people and to be able to determine what they would be good at and he did surround himself with some very talented individuals. And um, a lot of it was coming from the factory. We promoted from within. There's a lesson to be learned there. 
Interesting. Yeah, though that's a very. I think that there would be something to be said for noticing the talent you have around you and promoting it. Listeners, first, I got to tell you, I'm so grateful for you guys tuning in. I know we have lots of competition out there. Freakonomics, This American Life, Joe Rogan. Also, I just want to let you know, if you have guest ideas or questions for me or Lloyd, we'd love for you to reach out. And if you want to talk about future advertising opportunities, we're very happy to talk to you anytime. Feel free to email me at noah at graphpinkert.com. That's N-O-A-H at G-R-A-F-F-P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. And now, back to the episode. How many employees did you guys have various times? At various times, uh, during World War II, there were over 200 people working there. Wow. And uh, three shifts. And then uh, about the time I started there in 1970, um, we probably had a little over 100 people working there. It pretty much stayed that way for quite a while. And then you get a lot of Chinese competition coming, and we started losing some accounts. Sure. Right. Because I was going to ask, you know, it sounds like for a while things stayed pretty good, had some nice contracts. So I want to know how a company goes from thriving or just being, you know, very successful for a long time to closing its doors. What happened? A good client of mine, of Graf Pinker, very successful. He says there was an auction of a company he knew going on. And he said, Noah, I'd love for you to do a podcast with a company that failed, that went out of business. I want to know how that happens. So how do you go from doing really well to it's just time to go? When you started with the spike business and everything, and then you kind of lose all of that, that was a problem. So you lost the spike business partly because of the golf business going down. And then were they starting to make that stuff in China as well? Or was that just mainly the golf thing? No, that was it was more that, um, well, China did affect it only because shoes weren't being made in the United States anymore. So suddenly shoes are being made overseas, and so they go. And um, and we were making all these plates that went into the soles that we'd screw the spikes into. Right, so you're not going to ship those to China. Right. So that really did screw things up then. That really screwed things up. And then, of course, the greenskeepers came in and did their thing of, of stopping people from wearing the spikes on the courses. What was the bigger deal? The greenskeepers thing came first, but then... It kind of happened about the same time. It, it was kind of a one-two punch. Uh, I can't really tell which. Probably, probably the, the shoe business going out was probably first. And then the greenskeeper greens pe- uh, uh, keeper came along and they did their thing, you know. It's kind of so, result into the wounds. Yeah. But you had some other interesting accounts. You were you were making something for for Israel. Yeah, that really kept us going. And what we, so what what was this job? We were uh, making parts for uh, General Dynamics, and they they were up in Burlington, Vermont. 
And they had a contract with Raphael, which is Israeli part of the military of Israel. And um, we were making these little fasteners that were holding ceramic plates on the side of tanks. And uh, so that any kind of an anti-tank weapon couldn't uh, take a track off a tank. So they hung these ceramic plates over the tracks on both sides. And it was fabulous business. I mean, general dynamics and Israel military. Sounds good. Yeah, we were getting $1.5 million contracts. And I mean, it, it, it ended up being like 40%, 30% of the business. I mean, we were just flying along on, on these contracts that kept coming in. And when is this? This is like 80s and 90s? Yeah, this is like 80s and 90s. The cam multi-spindle years were still uh, prosperous back then. Absolutely. That's, that was what they were made on. Uh, they kept all the six spindle acmes going. And it was, it was just, and it was easy work. Every, it was aluminum. It was wonderful. You know, you just, it was just great work. Okay. 80s, 90s, good. Um, but we're still, you know, I mean, it's 21 years since 2000. So what happened? Well, first, I think probably the most important thing that happened, I would say, was reinvestment in new equipment. We started getting into some lean years really quick, and there didn't seem to be enough cash in hand. So are you talking 2008 or are you talking before that? This is like early 2000s. Okay. And, and really, we, we, there was this philosophy, and it goes back to F.C. Phillips, was that you don't go to the bank for anything. Interesting. Yeah, he didn't believe in it. Which is kind of nice if you don't have to go to the bank. Yeah, of course, if you can do it. But, I mean, we probably should have. And um, the name of trying to keep the production off the machines up and the use of an Acme, uh, Acmes are very fast, but for precision work, you know, they're not precision machines. And you can only do so many operations on it. And Yes. The way to go today is, you know, get a machine that can cross-drill, mill, do everything possible on one operation on the machine, and off comes a part that's totally complete. And if I had to recommend to anybody in the business right now, I would just say, get the fastest, the best machine you can, and, it, and you're going to stay competitive. Because if you don't have that machine, somebody else is, and they're going to have a better price, and uh, you're not going to be able to keep up. Usually. Usually. Or if you're going to use the older machines, you better really know what you're doing. Yes. It's all about having the right product. And if you've got the right market and the right product, the older machines will do it for you. Yeah. And uh, that's fine. You got to know your customer and you got to know who your customers are and what you're going to be making. Sure. And so you started having to outsource because you didn't have the precision you needed. Yes. There was a time when we first started out. So you have an Acme and you have a Brown and Sharp, but what about a Swiss machine? And a Swiss machine can do things differently than an Acme or a Brown and Sharp can do. So we were constantly, if I saw a part that I had to quote and it looked more like a Swiss machine job, I had a couple of Swiss houses that I would deal with. I could add a little bit to the selling price and I could still get the job. So it was better than not getting the job. 
But in retrospect, you know, it sounds like there was some people that wanted to upgrade in equipment, maybe others that didn't, but this was the route you took until pretty much the end. I mean, you have a little bit of CNC machines or you did, correct? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Would you have a Ganesh? Yes. Now the, the Ganesh. I've heard good things. I was just visiting somebody last Friday and they're doing a very high precision thing. They're using citizens and Ganeshes and they had nothing but good to say about those. Absolutely. I mean, it got to the point where if you want to go and quote a job and you were going to quote it on the Ganesh, I could get the job. And because the machine was so good. If you quote for the machine and you know what the machine can do for you, you know, you're going to get a good price. And the Ganesh is a good machine for that. In the end, we that machine was absolutely busy all the time. It never was down. It had a backlog of work. And that's what you want. So would you say the number one reason why you weren't able to survive was because you just didn't upgrade the equipment? I mean, every company has reasons that things don't go right. Would you say for your company, that was a very significant reason? Yes. Yes. And I think, I wonder what the importance is of a sales force. In other words, it worked very well for us for many years where a guy, a salesman, get in a car, visit the customer, face-to-face contact, builds up a, a good relationship with the customer. That was the thing that really kept us going. We had great salesmen that could, you know, would visit our customers. And uh, I don't know if it's as true today with the internet as it was then. And I still got to believe, at least I hope, that today we still have salesmen that would promote you and would show an interest in, in, in other people's companies and be able to bring back work and that kind of thing. I think there is still, but actually, if you listen to last podcast, uh, it was with a marketing guy and he says that going and visiting your customers, that's the old way. And the newer way is putting out content that helps your customers online and establishes you as an authority. You know, obviously you've got to talk the talk and demonstrate to them that you're worthy of their business. Right, right. We had one terrific salesman and he retired and uh, that hurt us. I mean, there, we really needed some kind of a sales force program to really pick up the ball and uh, go forward. But at some point, they, they just didn't even have salesmen. They just thought that they could uh, survive on just the original customers. Well, you'll never do that. I mean, you're going to lose customers only because people are out of business. And you've constantly got to remember that the customer you have today may not be the customer you have tomorrow. So you've got to constantly replenish yeah. your customer base. And that was another big factor. So those were do. those were the two big factors, not upgrading and not taking care of customers you had and not going after new customers to grow. Yes, absolutely. A lesson there for anybody listening. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's one of the major takeaways. What was the high point and what was the low point of your career for you personally? I think... I think during the the time we were doing work for General Dynamics was that was great. We were quoting against a lot of other houses and we were still winning the contracts. We had a wonderful salesman on the road that was able to 
that, that our customers felt comfortable with and knew that we'd deliver and uh, quality would be there and we'd be able to, to get their parts on time. It's other, those are other very important features of anybody trying to do this kind of work. It was a pleasure. It really was. I mean, I mean, there's nothing like success, right? It's just great. You know, it sounds like your your nephew was running the company at, at the end, correct? Right. And, you know, uh, there's many good people at the company still, I'm sure. Talking to you, it sounds like you have some sadness and sentimentality about the whole thing. Yet at the same time, I don't gather that you personally feel that you're okay with it in your mind. Personally, like, yes, it's the end of an era, but you've come to terms with it and you're good with it. Yes, absolutely. I I think FC would have been absolutely astounded that the company survived the way it has. I love that. You can look at it half empty or half full. And I really like that idea of just saying, you know, look what we did rather than it failed. It's just lived when its course lived its life. Would you say that's a good way of, of summing it up? It yes, it it had an incredible run. There aren't too many companies that have runs like that, and I'm so happy I was part of it. Just a few other questions that I I often ask people: What's something you learned last week? It doesn't have to be anything too profound, but just give me one thing. What do you mean last week? Uh, In the last seven days, what is one thing? I mean, maybe you learned some piece of sports trivia. Maybe you learned. I don't know. I know that shameless self-promotion, today's machining world slash Swarfcast, we did a, a video documentary about FC Phillips, which is going to be available online. And you were intimately involved with that. Did you learn anything from that? Well, yeah, I I had a terrific time with the videographer. We, we really had a good time. I will say, no, after thinking about all this, that I think in my life, I've never had so many positive experiences with you and uh, your company. And uh, I can't believe how things have turned out, how many good things have happened. And uh, I know that's kind of odd, but uh, if you have to go out, this has been one of the most incredible trips that I've had in my life. One thing that we talk about in the in the video in preparation for this auction, you discovered all kinds of treasure. You discovered an anvil, correct? Yeah, <laughs> the anvil. Yeah, I mean, there's just been so many different things that have happened. The anvil uh, in the basement. A uh, hundred-year-old anvil. A hundred-year-old anvil made out of uh, Brooklyn, New York, the finest anvil maker in the United States at the time. I mean, it's I, I had never even seen an anvil. It looked like in the Looney Tunes. It was, it was cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you hear the word happiness, what does it mean to you? The word happiness? Yeah. It's a good question. I think really just having your health and having good friends and interesting people around you. How do you get it any better than that? Right. Absolutely. And I I have to say, getting to know you has been great. It's getting to know people like you that make this job fun and give it some purpose. It's been great. Again, if people want to learn more about FC Phillips and the stuff we've talked about, this is a cool short documentary that's going to be on Today's Machining World and on the Today's Machining World YouTube. 
I recommend you check that out. It's starring Brian. <laughs> so thank you so much. And um, thank you, Noah. Thank you. I enjoyed this. Thank you. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. Music